From the FJC in Washington, D.C., I'm Mark Sherman, and this is Off Paper. Even now, as a law professor at one of the most prestigious law schools in the country, if you would go back to Nebraska and ask people that knew me prior to going to prison that Sean would become a lawyer and a law professor and litigate cases and what any of those things, they would say, you are crazy. When people are released from prison, they faced multiple barriers to successful community reintegration. I'd never been on the internet, never seen an iPhone, an iPad, an iPod. Um, things that just normal people can do with a few clicks of the phone were insurmountable for me. Um, I remember getting stuck in the aisle of Walmart trying to pick out toothpaste. Uh, and my now wife saying, are you okay? And I'm just like, I've not had this amount of choice in 10 years. Returning citizens must reestablish relationships with family members who often provide the greatest tangible and emotional support. So when guys typically get out, they make all these pledges and promises to themselves to their family. But when they're open, it's like they're off and running. And they're not focused. And that's what the problem is for most of them. They don't get, they don't get focused. And then, and then if they have an addiction, they start falling back into those same patterns, same routine. And they go back to the same community and they look up the same friends. And then they're right back in that cycle again. So they don't know how to remove themselves from those environments, remove themselves from those friends. I mean, because even though you say change people, places, and things, that's not an easy process. They have to obtain health care, which is particularly important because many returning citizens are in ill health often possessing chronic illnesses, substance use disorders, and or mental health disorders. Returning citizens often face difficulties finding stable housing due to individual challenges, systemic barriers, and cost. If you look at Maslow's hierarchy of need, mm-hmm. uh, you're supposed to have this, you know, this trajectory up that, up, up that stratification like level to where now you reach your self-actualization. But how can you even come close to reaching self-actualization when you can't even do the basic things of food, clothing, and shelter? That's where we're at with most of these guys. And so we focus on getting them beyond food, clothing, and shelter because right now they're mostly in survival mode. And that's all they've ever been doing. And it's not so much that it's a comfort there, but it's a familiarity there. So you got to get them moved beyond that. And as a reach community resource person, how to do something to relieve a burden such as uh, get a guy a bed, help a guy pay for his toothache and get it pulled, things like that. You got to come from behind that desk and you got to say, what is wrong? What do you need? As opposed to, you know, gentlemen, commitment order says you're not supposed to drop dirty, you're not supposed to, you got to have to abstain for illegal use of drugs. You know, don't nobody want to hear that when I got other issues going on. And my issue is, I might not be able to read it right, my issue is, I got a daughter who's on a deathbed, and I don't have any medical coverage for her. Many people returning to the community from prison face significant employment barriers and educational deficits. There was one interview, a used car salesman, where the guy, the owner said, well, Sean, you have a 10-year resume gap here. What's going on? And I no sooner got the word prison out of my mouth, and he said, let's go outside. So we walk through the showroom past the customers, and we get just out the door. And he says, Mr. Hopwood, please don't come back here ever again. And it was at that point that I thought, you know, the ethical bar for used car salesmen is not high. I might not find work.
Mm. Uh, it may be difficult. I'm okay with having a day practice. But my social worker and me said, meet them where they're at. Then start working with them. Any guy, you know, doesn't have any money to get his tooth pulled and all the cost of 75 bucks, we'll do that. You know, uh, a guy, he's got a job, a great job, but he wants to have $300 worth of tools. And he doesn't have a job, and he barely got enough money for a bus for to get there. So we resolve, we get your bus pass, we get you $300 worth of tools, and we send you out there. Because it's the small things that matter more than the big things. You want him to go and excel and go to Harvard. He's just trying to make it through community college first. Everything else will fall in play after that. That was Clark Porter, former BOP resident turned community resource specialist for the U.S. Probation Office in the Eastern District of Missouri, and with Sean Hopwood, former BOP resident turned Georgetown law professor. You'll hear more from both of them later on. So the questions to be addressed are, when should reentry services begin? What can be gained from starting as early as possible? And what would the challenges be in doing so? Here's Chris Dozier, retired chief pretrial services officer for the District of New Jersey. The DOJ put points of contact for reentry in every federal district, and we saw all this effort to help offenders being released from incarceration after five, ten years of custody. Um, they would come out with no GED or um, sometimes no substance abuse services when they had issues. And a lot of resources were put into helping them succeed, which was fantastic. But those of us in the pretrial field watched this and thought, hey, I supervised that guy for a couple of years, in fact. And if these services are good for him coming out, why weren't they good for him earlier in the process? Such a change implicates not only pretrial services, but probation officers conducting pre-sentence investigations and submitting pre-sentence reports. Also, because the BOP is under the Department of Justice and probation and pretrial services are under the judiciary, a major challenge that exists is ensuring continuity of services between them. Though never sentenced to prison, my guests have spent a lot of time there. Jay Wetzel was a probation administrator at the Administrative Office of the U.S. Courts and is now a criminal justice consultant. And Scott Anders was chief U.S. probation officer in the Eastern District of Missouri and is now director of the St. Louis, Missouri County Jail together with Marie Garcia, a senior social science analyst at the DOJ's National Institute of Justice, they researched and wrote All Hands on Deck toward a reentry-centered vision for federal probation for the December 2020 edition of the Federal Probation Journal. In the article, they lay out an evidence-based argument for a holistic approach to reentry that gives returning citizens a greater chance at success. Scott Anders and Jay Wetzel, welcome to Off Paper. Thank you, Mark. Thank you. Congratulations, guys, on the publication of your article. We've worked on this issue together for a long time, the three of us. So it's, it's just a great pleasure to have you on Off Paper. So let's start by talking about early and in-depth information gathering. And Jay, perhaps it would be helpful if you could first describe the risk-need responsivity framework that governs supervision and how it informs the discussion of early engagement. Sure, I will do my best. So for 10, 15 years now, 
R&R has been the foundational principle of everything we've done in post-conviction supervision in the federal system, with risk telling us to focus on the higher risk populations. That's where you're going to get a return on your investment. The needs principle is that you need to identify those criminogenic needs, like identified in the PICRA, you know, uh, criminal thinking, substance abuse, uh, employment and education, and criminal peers, we are in a position and trained to to address those once they come out on supervision. And then responsivity, making sure you focus and leverage um, cognitive behavioral uh, programs and also are sensitive to the unique learning styles of everybody under supervision. And the reason we wrote the article is I think we've made great strides in federal probation and pretrial with R&R over the years. But as you may have seen, the U.S. Sentencing Commission just came out with a report uh, a couple weeks ago about our rearrest rates. And um, they were still stubbornly high, like 49.3%. And so the idea for the paper is how can we use these things that and um, evidence these practices and the R&R principle, and how can we take what we've learned and try to engage earlier um, and hopefully meet the BOP halfway and improve the continuity of care. So, and with folks in Missouri Eastern, what they accomplished, what sort of, in my mind, um, articulated the art of the possible if a district was really focusing on addressing the deficits that these folks leave with, right? So they go into prison with deficits in many instances, those are compounded and made worse uh, by just the um, experience of incarceration. And the sooner we can sort of reach out and like they've done in St. Louis, the hope was that we could start the transition and improve the probability of success. Christine Dozier, who is the now retired Chief U.S. Pretrial Services Officer in the District of New Jersey, has become known within our system as advocating this idea that reentry begins at arrest. In your fairly distant past, you did pretrial work. Fast forward so many years, you've been working on reentry in your role as an administrator at the administrative office. What are your thoughts about the role of pretrial, knowing what we know about risk, need, and responsivity, and trying to identify some early wins and do this early type of engagement that you're advocating in the article? Sure. And uh, I was raised as a pretrial purist a long, long time ago, and um, my engagement in reentry has changed my thinking. I'm aware of what the folks in New Jersey and other districts have done to engage folks to and give them improved opportunities while they're um, pending um, trial. I guess one of my concerns is, from the R&R perspective, is that there are structural problems that I'm sure this podcast isn't going to fix um, as much as I would like it to. That being said, because 70% of pretrial defendants are detained, and even if you take out non-citizens, 50% of them are detained. And those that are, are over, overwhelmingly the folks who need the programming. So structurally, with U.S. Marshals putting pretrial detainees in contract local jails with no opportunities to programming, we miss a tremendous opportunity. And while there's, I'm sure, lots of impediments, why that is the way it is, I think that's a, a missed opportunity. Not just to discount the efforts that pretrial services can do with the folks who've been released, but they are the lower risk people. 
typically by the pitcher. So that is my uh, sort of structural critique of um, where I think we could unlock the potential of evidence-based programming to really start reentry at arrest. Scott, I wanted to bring you into the discussion because, again, like pre-trial, when we talk about the role of pre-sentence officers, we, we, we often don't talk about reentry, right? But the sentence also includes, almost always, a term of supervised release. What kinds of work was being done in Missouri Eastern when you were there by pre-sentence officers in terms of early engagement? Uh, thanks, Mark. Yeah, uh, and this systems approach is so important. And uh, so the great thing about uh, the pre-sentence officer involvement early in the process is uh, they uh, they can still uh, begin to develop that relationship with the person even if they're detained. I had the opportunity of touring the designation center and meeting some of those staff. And they talked about how important that pre-sentence is, uh, not only to designating based on risk, but uh, for information that impacts reentry too. The, the the medical information uh, is so important to them, and this this area of education and workforce development, because the Bureau of Prisons has training programs, they have GED, but they're all voluntary. And so, if we can communicate with people early on in this process about the importance of education if they don't have a GED uh, incorporating that as a recommended special condition and then uh, gauging their area of interest some of them have never even considered what their interest may be they've just worked in certain jobs and so on the back end of this uh, an officer who receives a case may just look at the person's employment history and uh, never have a conversation with them about what their their interests and their skills might be. So uh, this this assessment in the early stages of it can help the Bureau of Prisons with developing uh, training programs and also with matching people into programs that they're most interested in, which we know, uh, if it's, especially if it's voluntary, then they'll be more likely to participate and complete. I wanted to drill down a little bit and ask you about the relationships that you and the staff in Missouri Eastern really developed with the regional BOP staff. You know, what was the goal, you know, and, and what did you guys ultimately accomplish? Through those conversations uh, at, uh, with different federal prisons and wardens and, and even at the national level, uh, and then uh, ultimately the regional level, we were able to find ways to have an impact just in terms of what programs were being developed, not just what was already existing, but to be able to work together and, and bring people in from the community. So we began to participate in mock job fairs and and bring employers in, which, which helped us on the post-release side, because now employers could see that, that these were people that, that were qualified, that did have skills, and, and we could even start that process sooner, helping coach them on interviewing and preparing resumes. Uh, so ultimately, we developed a, a process and, and network of partnerships so, so that there were national conferences centered around workforce development. And uh, and then as I really began to learn more about how uh, there were just so many other facets and, and barriers to reentry, we started to talk more about cognitive programming and how we could bring staff in to help with that because the Bureau of Prisons wasn't uh, making that a priority on their end. It's really continue to grow in terms of what the possibilities are. 
So Scott, I wanted to ask you about pre-release planning. And the reason I want to ask you about that is I've had a couple of conversations with people who've spent some time in the BOP. One of them happens to be Sean Hopwood, who's a professor of law now at Georgetown Law School. And one of the things Sean talked about in our conversation was the insufficiency of of pre-release planning in the BOP. I talk about this a lot when I talk with federal probation officers. Mm -hmm. And what I say is, you know, I have a lot of empathy for your situation because honestly, um, you're being penalized for the Bureau of Prisons failings. Uh, I do not believe that you can have someone incarcerated for more than months, let alone years, and have successful reentry in most circumstances if you're not focused on that while they're in prison. I didn't, wasn't involved in any programs to help me prepare for reentry until six months before I was about to be released. But by then, it's too late. Um, by then, your job skills have deteriorated, your social skills. And I think the First Step Act's going to solve a lot of these problems sure. if, it's, if it's implemented correctly. But, you know, for me, reentry should be focused on the day someone enters prison. Um, there should be a plan set up then. Uh, if I had waited till the last six months and hadn't studied the law and hadn't been on my own form of rehabilitation, I would, I, I, I may very well be back there. I want to ask you about that because when you were in Missouri Eastern, you all tried to do that in terms of the pre-release process, especially when you brought on to your staff Clark Porter, who, before becoming a social worker, had spent several years incarcerated in the BOP. It's, it was really amazing process. We initially set up a meeting to talk with wardens in at the federal prison in Marion, Illinois, because with these programs being voluntary, he said, well, if we could set up a process that they could have video visits with their family, if they were participating in these programs, then we would have a much higher level of participation. And so we drove to Marion, and as, as we were pulling up to the prison, he said, he, he said, the last time I was here, I was in shackles. And uh, just, it was just amazing then to watch him pitch his idea with the, the wardens and associate wardens there uh, about how this process could work. And they all were nodding their heads in agreement. And that began a process where now he can go into all of these prisons. And he also spoke about how important it was to get information and how challenging it was. First thing I do, I do, I do the things that were either done for me or what or weren't, weren't done for me. Mm-hmm. For the things that were done for me, uh, that was a a form. They used to give us free books, but one day they sent me a couple of books, and they had a form that said, "Send twenty five dollars, and we will send you a list of resources in your area." So I asked my aunt, I said, "Hey, can you do this for me and pay for this?" And she said, "Okay." When I got the information back, it was everything I asked for, mental health, uh, going to college, uh, you know, substance abuse, uh, medical care. It gave, gave me a whole several pages of addresses to write. So when I came here working with the probation office, I said, that's something that is needed. So I said, how can I do that? So what we did was I got together with a... Uh, with the employment specialist, which is Quincy, mm-hmm. and uh, uh, people who uh, who specialize in different things, and we created a, a form. 
and that former asked you about your educational background. They asked you, do you want to go to uh, train or education? It asked you, what are your needs are from medical to dental to housing? And you check off. All you do is check it off and put it in the mail and address it to me. And those things that you asked for are what you would get in the mail from me. So if you ask for a two-year college, and you live in Cape Toronto, I found it to you a college in Cape Toronto, and I sent it to you. You know, uh, if you ask for medical and dental, and you're in the St. Louis city or county area, I get as close to your area that you live and send you that information. One of the first steps that he put into place was a pre-release information questionnaire, and then put together surveys so that we could look at uh, trends and see where uh, the, the areas uh, where that we could really begin to provide resources for people. And so we expanded this video conferencing process to 20 different institutions where we could we, we could not only implement family visitation and, and begin talking about pre-release with the families, but we were also able to pull together groups of people, like, for example, residents that uh, that owe child support and have an expert on the line that could talk with them about how to re-engage with their children and group of veterans where we could talk about veterans resources that are available. We even had Judge Henry Autry do video conferencing with all of the re-entry coordinators from uh, all of the federal prisons across the United States where he talked about the gang court that we have and began to look at how we could connect people returning uh, to eastern Missouri that had prior gang involvement. Thank you. Uh, Jed, I want to move on to talking a little bit about national policy, but before I do that, anything to add in terms of just sort of the the pre-release process in the context of officer early engagement. Sure, and I, I don't know whether uh, Scott will chat about it again, but one of the things they were absolute masters at is gathering sentry data. It's, you know, BOP's main case, case management uh, system is like a 1980s DOS-based monster. Um, but Scott had staff uh, in Missouri who were able to find out all kinds of things, both at the individual level, uh, personal level, but also trends. And um, one of the things I was most passionate about was trying to improve data exchange because uh, these systems are antiquated. They don't speak to one another across different branches of government, and you know what a hurdle that is. Uh, but in Scott's district, they were able to really leverage and know what's there in the Bureau. Within the Bureau, within different branches, they don't even always share information. So it's, it's, it's a real challenge. One thing I did want to mention is that folks are familiar with the pattern which came out through the First Step Act, uh, but they are now creating an, a supplemental uh, risk tool, the SPARC-13, and that stands for the Standardized Prisoner Assessment for Reductions in Criminality. And what that is, is a tool that's not pulling data elements out of Sentry, but rather from their 13 areas of programming, and NIJ has a RFP out for consultants to help them create that. And so that includes some areas that we would consider criminogenic needs, like criminal attitudes and antisocial peers. So that, I'm sure that will be a year or two, but that will be a, a real critical element to um, for officers to receive that information to improve pre-release planning. And and if I may, you know, the work you mentioned, Clark Porter, the whole probation officer assistant position, and is often used to sort of 
test folks before they become officers and just, you know, to hire folks right out of school or um, out of grad school as credible messengers and having the type of credibility that Clark had when he went into the institution. And I think that's something we've forgotten. And as a system, I hope that system, uh, we, uh, the courts and BOP, learn to leverage that. So you mentioned the pattern, which is risk needs assessment instrument used by the Bureau of Prisons that was mandated by the First Step Act. And I do want to ask you now about sort of these national policy developments that have occurred over the last several years. Let's start by talking about the Second Chance Act of 2007. And also, if there are other things officers should know and things probation and pre-child services offices should know as they're thinking about ways, again, to engage early in this process and facilitate a smoother, a warmer handoff from the BOP to U.S. probation in the reentry process. Okay. I hope you have a couple hours, though. I mean, that's... I. I came from the District of Maryland, specifically was hired to work on reentry with the passage of the Second Chance Act in 2008. One of the last things I was working on, also with the Northern District of Illinois, was to develop a local model Second Chance Act policy, which I don't think, um, I'm not sure of the status of it. I think it's coming soon. And the idea was to make it easier for officers to understand Second Chance Act and to leverage it because the guidance that is out there currently nationally is very much focused on procurement, right? Which is not everybody, most people's bailiwick or it's high level, you know, principles and policies. And so I was working with the Northern District of Illinois in order to make it intelligible and sort of what you need to know as an officer, as a suspo, as, as a, as a chief or a deputy. So, um, you know, and I know there's serious constraints budget wise this year, um, and last year and next year, uh, but it's it's a fantastic tool to address the criminogenic needs and the responsivity factors of the population that's reentering. On First Step Act, huge lift for the Bureau of Prisons. I have to say, more recently, I've learned of all kinds of things that they're doing, both, you know, that is fulfilling the mandate of what um, the Bureau of Prisons was told to do. Um, they are, one of the things I know they're working on is building peer support programming uh, for mental health and substance abuse or substance use disorder folks within the institution in hopes that they would then become certified and get both the help with that capacity within the institutions, but also to take that skill set and get employed upon release as a, a peer recovery specialist or a peer support specialist. They're also completely rewrite or reevaluating all their wellness curriculum. Uh, they're developing a new risk tool. Uh, they also are contracting out for remote peer support for inmates while they're in the RRCs and while they're on LM. So there's more continuity of care. And they also are now soliciting for um, an evaluation of five or six different programs that are sort of their premier programs, therapeutic communities for women, uh, some of their faith-based programs, uh, their outpatient sex offender um, treatment. So the Bureau is has a mandate. They're working very hard. You know, we had First Step Act happened, and then we had a government shutdown, and then COVID. So um, their, their implementation context could not have been worse. Um, but I, I just want everybody to know in the field that the Bureau, from my, from what I've heard and learned and read, they're, they're trying. Um, and I think it, those things, some of those efforts create a real opportunity 
if we're there there to receive them um, and are informed and we can have collaboration between the Bureau and uh, probation pretrial. We're going to take a short break. When we return, I'll ask Scott and Jay about the criminogenic needs of criminal thinking and criminal peers and how officers can take those needs into account when working with clients who are reentering. As we go into the break, you'll hear from Dr. Marie Garcia, who describes the goal of the DOJ's National Institute of Justice in researching innovative reentry programs. The holistic approach to reentry is not just the person, it's the place. You know, because people are returning to their communities and to their families, and they often need support as well. So we're, we've learned a lot in that space. Um, but we're, in the last few years, NIJ has spent upwards of about $20 million um, to specifically look at innovative programs in reentry. And so what we're looking at is, you know, what's helping people in, you know, when they return? Is that virtual reality, you know, learning how to do a job interview with the technology? Is it having, you know, cognitive behavioral therapy and motivational interviewing, like what's working? Um, Because what we're finding is that, as you know, we have experiments going on in reentry and corrections across the United States and in the federal system. And no one's doing anything alike because they each have their unique challenges. So what we're trying to uncover is, is there a gem? Is there this program that works really, really well in, in one place that we can kind of scope it so that other places can try it out as well? So we're really trying to move away from doing smaller projects to more large scale. Let's try to build these up so that other places know like, hey, this works for us. And if you look like us, maybe this will work for you too. You're listening to Off Paper. In this age of utilizing evidence-based supervision strategies to reduce recidivism, FJC Probation and Pretrial Services Education offers districts the opportunity to participate in a program designed to help supervisors learn to improve their work with line officers. Supervising officers in an evidence-based environment, or SOBI for short, is an in-district, year-long blended learning program led by FJC faculty and clinical psychologist Dr. Guy Bergone. The program aims to teach supervisors an array of skills such as listening actively, providing feedback, and reinforcing officers' efforts. You will learn to apply evidence-based principles and help officers connect risk assessment results with case plans and supervision strategies. Methods for conducting focused discussion during case staffing and interactions with officers will be examined, and strategies for reviewing case plans to ensure that they reflect evidence-based supervision approaches will be explored. Recent program updates include addressing evidence-based case staffing with pre-sentence officers and sessions emphasizing leadership's role in program implementation, staff development, and district sustainability strategies. The FJC will begin accepting district applications for the 2022-2023 SOBI program in February. All districts interested in learning more and participating in this program, visit the FJC's Probation and Pretrial Services page at fjc.dcn. Scott, we know that the criminogenic needs of criminal thinking and criminal peers are among the leading factors re-entering clients are dealing with when they come back to the community. Could you talk about how you all attempted to address these issues with clients in Missouri Eastern and perhaps even share some of your observations from your experience now in terms of what you see happening with residents in the St. Louis County Jail? 
So when you look at why they're in the situation that they're in, it's probably taken a lifetime to get to the point where they are now and, and they've made poor decisions that result in in that and, and their peers were a big part of that. And uh, yet we expect immediate change when they come out in compliance with all of the conditions. So we trained over 40 officers in moral recognition therapy. And we even started before that with programs like Thinking for a Change and working it out. There are just a number of different cognitive type programs available. There are journals there that can be used in a group setting or individually to help work on this. And, and we incorporated a lot of that into our reentry courts. And so helping a person just in terms of how they respond also helps with their job retention and their relationships, which are so important to their success as well. So this is really just a f- fundamental area that needs to be developed initially. And so eventually we were able to start those MRT programs in the residential reentry centers because we wanted to try to start that process as soon as possible. And then ultimately we, we were able to even uh, go back further and start them inside the prisons in Greenville and Marion so that we could help address this even prior to release. And then in our gang courts and our drug courts, our mental health court, uh, veterans court program, we would address this in all of those sessions as well. And I'm, I'm thinking about it. Our first graduate of our gang court, he said, this gang court is like my family. And it, it struck me because usually the gang is like their family. He said, I used to kill people in the gang and others would want to shoot people. And he said, now that I'm working, my friends are asking me, can I help them get a job? And uh, and so it just showed us that uh, the way he thought about it had changed. And, and we had others who said, when I saw a policeman, I used to be concerned about getting arrested for a crime. And now I, I think about, well, I'm glad I have insurance and a driver's license. And so, yeah, it's just so important that we begin to address that as soon as possible. And a lot of times that includes addressing that with the family as well, because there, is, there are issues of codependency and other things that, that can impact it as well. So, Jay, I want to turn to you. You know, when an individual returns to the community and begins his or her term of supervised release, in addition to the things Scott mentioned, what comes to mind for you in terms of how officers can continue to assume that role of change agent, how they can help create opportunities for clients to change when it comes to thinking patterns and peers? We know from the post-conviction risk assessment, the PICRA, right, that those are, and from the research literature, those are the two biggest drivers as far as new criminal conduct once folks are out on supervision. We also know that Incarceration is a great place for those not to be improved upon, right? Criminal peers, you are amongst those. And as far as cognitions and you know, decision-making, you don't make many decisions for yourself within, uh, within institutions and maybe within the RDAP or some of the therapeutic communities. So they're in a perfect place to not work on those things. Um, and I think, I think the linchpin, and this is again sort of a structural problem, is the RRCs. If, if you, Probation and and BOP could use that time, be it two months, four months, whatever that time is while they're integrating the community to give them a heavy dosage of of CBT and or even or maybe the CNBC curriculum that PPSO is rolling out. I know PPSO is working on an implementation plan, but it seems to me that would be the greatest place to swim upstream um, with pattern information, with information from the Spark 13, with the PICRA and use that while they have some limits on their liberty and are sort of a captive audience. And if our system did that, 
then I think that would be the in, best thing we could do to increase the probability of post-release success. As far as the, the officer's role and the change agent, office, the, the language of the guide, frankly, in my opinion, of the officers being the primary change agent, I have a little bit of trouble with that because if it's not a partnership, then it discounts the value of the person who's been incarcerated. And so I, I'm, I think this is worth spending a little bit of time on because, you know, our listening audience, which consists of officers, the officer can be the change agent and that should be the aspiration. But they're not in this alone and they can't do it on their own. Here's Marie Garcia. I think one thing that gets overlooked a lot. We don't talk about the stress and strain of the job and you know what that looks like for an officer. I mean, when we're talking about caseloads in some places that are extremely high, we are doing research on this and because we know from the literature that the relationship between the person being supervised and the person that's doing the supervision is really critical. If they don't trust and have faith in their officer, they may not go to them. That human factor also includes the officer. I think that's something that we don't consider enough when we talk about recidivism and reentry because they're important. They're hugely important to this process. Scott, you know, you saw this firsthand as a chief. Before that, as a deputy chief, you were an officer yourself. I'm interested to hear your thoughts about officer as change agent when it comes to facilitating reentry. That first impression is so important. So, one of the policies that we put in place was uh, when the person arrives at the RRC, within the first week, the officer goes and, and asks them, uh, one of the questions is, what is your, what is your dream job? Uh, just to uh, get them to start thinking about it. And uh, a number of them would say, I have no idea. I've, I've never even thought about what that would be. So, uh, but that that so that first impression is so important, and and, t- and a lot of times we'll hear uh, new officers just start with the conditions. So you're required to abide by these conditions, and so the interaction and the relationship starts off uh, on a different foot. Uh, so, how can we begin to communicate with them so that they know we're interested in their success? And and a lot of people coming out of prison will will say that the probation officer is there to to catch them and and uh, see them return to prison. So we, from the very beginning, uh, even even when our uh, staff would do pretrial uh, uh, seminars to, uh, to ha- and including people from the Bureau of Prisons to talk about uh, what expectations could be for the person if they were sentenced to prison, uh, all the way through conversations with the family and, 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 and on pre-release when we, when we would meet with the family, and say we want this, uh, your son or daughter to be successful when they're released. So if you start to see issues, please call us because we want to intervene before it becomes too problematic and, and find out what their concerns were. Are there people that they shouldn't associate with? And those are questions that can help us as officers uh, really begin to address some of these peer issues. So let's turn our focus to families, health, housing, education, and employment specifically Scott, what are some of the activities you've observed officers and clients engaging in that seem to work well? Well, the the thing that's coming to my mind first is we, we had staff that recommended a family visitation day and brought their children to the federal prison in Greenville, Illinois, to see their mothers. 
and some of the mothers had not seen their children in over five years and a lot can happen in five years. So it was just great to see them be able to interact and spend time together with activities. And it creates hope for the, the mothers uh, in, in terms of being able to see what life will be like when they're released and gives them inspiration to better themselves and, and to maintain that type of contact. And we, we eventually expanded that to video contacts because some of the children couldn't travel that distance. And ultimately, we ended up doing this at prisons in Leavenworth and then uh, several others. And each holiday, now our family program takes donations for children because so many people who are incarcerated have children. And oftentimes the children would go without Christmas gifts. So we would put together a drive. Our staff would all participate in, in bringing families that were left here in the community and see them receive those gifts. And we did some of that by video as well so that uh, residents could begin to see that. And then here in my new position at the county jail, we actually brought in tablets two months ago, which allow residents to have phone calls and email. And so they're able now to communicate with their family at any point in time that they would like to, and that's available to each resident. And so the motivation of people here has just skyrocketed in terms of uh, now they're they're willing just to participate in other things. And during the pandemic, with having to be locked down more, ways of communicating like that are so important. Initially, visitation wasn't even available. So I would imagine that the Bureau of Prisons experienced some of that same uh, some of the same challenges there. And so, using technology is extremely important as well, and especially uh, in the times that we've been in during the past year and a half. How do you see that? engagement with families translating to better outcomes once folks are released out in the community on supervision well it was uh, it was especially important when we when we saw so many different situations where there were thousands of inmates being released without reentry services uh, because of the legislation and and uh, administrative decisions and so our staff were able to pull together quickly because we had set up video processes already, bringing the family into the courthouse. And ultimately, it sped up our process in terms of being able to approve a home plan and employment plan. And it's it's not uncommon to see uh, an inmate coming out and owing thousands of dollars in past due child support. And here in Missouri, the state debt is repaid before the money goes to the children. So it, it creates a huge barrier because... People coming out of prison may be reluctant to work because their check will be garnished and it won't go to directly to the children. It goes to the state debt. So we were able to work with Department of Social Services, the courts, and the Department of Revenue uh, because when, when child support's owed and past due, they suspend driver's license here in the state as well. We were able to coordinate uh, through working with those agencies to combine and make a child support plan uh, that that could be put into place so that the Department of Revenue was willing to lift that suspension, which was important for them to be able to work and be able to get to to treatment and, and even to the probation office. We're going to take another short break. And again, as we move into it, you're going to hear Marie Garcia talk about redefining what success means in reentry. You're listening to Off Paper. One of the things we're really interested in is redefining what success means. We're all concerned about the rearrest rate and the reincarceration rate. So when we talk about recidivism, it's easy to measure, right? We can get 
data and say, were you arrested or not? Did you go back to custody or not? But when we really dig deep and try to understand the experience of reentry, did you have housing? You know, were you able to get an above the board job? You know, were you able to meet all of your, you know, your supervision requirements for the month? So if we start to redefine success, in addition to just were you rearrested or not, I think we'll see very different findings. Let's look at recidivism, of course, because that's the that's what we all want to know about. But we also want to know, you know, were their needs met? You know, were they able to secure housing and, and employment? So we want to really challenge the field to redefine, you know, success when it comes to reentry. Support for this program comes from FJC Probation and Pretrial Services Education. At FJC Probation and Pretrial Services Education, we believe transformative education and training are essential to the administration of justice. We use proven learning methods to inform, engage, and inspire the people we serve to reach individual and organizational excellence. Visit us at fjc.dcn forward slash p ampersand p. Support also comes from the Advisory Committee on Probation and Pretrial Services Education. The Advisory Committee consists of Chief U.S. Probation and Pretrial Services Officers, Deputy Chiefs, Supervisory Officers, Line Officers, and Representatives of the AOUSC Office of Probation and Pretrial Services. It works collaboratively with FJC staff to meet the continuing professional education needs of U.S. Probation and Pretrial Services officers. For more information, go to fjc.dcn. So, Jay, I wanted to move on and ask you more broadly, what types of services can be provided by probation and pretrial that can be funded by the Second Chance Act? If I may, could I mention... um some things that um, Scott's comments uh, brought to mind that I wanted to mention. One of the things I wanted to mention, and it's a change of thinking, is there are folks who had a place to go to, but it was a dysfunctional, antisocial context, and the folks did not want to go there. And so they used Second Chance Act funds to basically transplant them to another venue. And I, I don't know how much they've measured it. They had shared in some conferences a couple years ago some outcome data, uh, but it really changes a way of thinking because with Second Chance, you got to decide, is it a required expense? Well, maybe it is and maybe it isn't. If, if going back home is the worst thing that Johnny can do, then it is a required expense. So I think districts need to fully leverage Second Chance Act resources, um, especially the housing situation. Um, but also wanted to mention that PPSO has tried to or has rolled out new um, policies and procedures about transfer of supervision, which is a huge obstacle because there still is, with 94 districts, an inclination not to take cases that aren't from your jurisdiction, where it may really be in the best interest and success of that person coming out to go somewhere completely different. And it's it's an area where we as a system and officers need to rethink of where is he going or she going to have the best chance of success? Maybe they have no ties to the Eastern District of Virginia, but you know what? They have an employment opportunity or an uncle who's willing to help. Let's let's let him go there. There was a report by the Bureau of Justice Statistics just last week about the First Step Act, and one of the things that it noted 
is that all 122 BOP institutions now have video conferencing ability. Now, that's not necessarily for family, but it is for for court-related purposes, including U.S. probation. So if there is an upside to COVID-19 and the pandemic, right, it really jump-started and changed people's way of thinking on how we can engage. Scott, what can probation offices as organizations and what can individual officers do? The felony is only one characteristic, and uh, the person may be a veteran, they may be a person with disabilities, they may be a, a non-custodial parent, and uh, they may be low income. So we, we, we would look at what resources are available for that individual. If they were eligible for Medicaid now through this expansion program, instead of it being canceled and then us trying to address issues of mental health or, or disabilities when they're released, that actually can be suspended and started immediately, even if the person goes to a hospital for 24 hours. So we experience that here in the jail now where the cost won't be the burden of, of the county jail. It would be paid by Medicaid. And when they release, they'll immediately have that reinstated. So that's a huge benefit. We implemented a process through an MOU with our state, and that process uh, uh, streamlined things so that they weren't just going to, the, it could actually happen before they went to the RRC. Uh, prior to that, we had people coming out of the RRC and failing because they weren't eligible to even apply until they were released from the RRC. So there's this gap that Jay mentioned earlier at that RRC level. And so I'd encourage people to, especially with the expansion of Medicaid, to look at how that could be initiated at the pretrial level. So f- for a veteran, the tax credit for an employer that hires a veteran is actually $9,600 instead of $2,400. And there's a program called HUDVASH that that can provide housing vouchers for people uh, at no cost and uh, up to one year. And so, and healthcare and substance abuse treatment can be covered by the Veterans Administration. And they're the only agency that actually allows those benefits to start while they're at the RRC. So many people may not know that, that they could actually resume those veterans' benefits the day that they're released to the RRC. For us, we hired staff that had worked in the Bureau of Prisons. That's how we began to learn about Sentry and had experts in that area. We hired licensed clinical social workers and and involved practicum students, which allowed us to expand our ability to implement these programs and uh, and, uh, do a lot of the work that uh, maybe officers that didn't have that type of background would know even to be able to do, and then further expanded our partnerships uh, through the community to find out who was already doing this type of work and how were they funded. And so even though we didn't have funds to do something, we were able to utilize, and we couldn't receive grant funds directly, we were able to connect them with those resources, and, and it was an extension of our staff, essentially. I think there's a really important message there for uh, chiefs, deputy chiefs, supervisors, management teams about thinking through, okay, if we as a department want to do more with reentry, we need to target our recruiting to attract experienced, high-quality candidates with those different skill sets. Did you guys have those conversations? Oh, yeah, we definitely had those conversations. And, and just to give you an example, now at the jail, we're looking at bringing in social work practicum students so that we could have a student on each floor. And in order to do that, we have to have uh, certified mentors that are that can uh, be available to supervise those practicum students. It's incredibly important that we're, if we don't have the knowledge that we're communicating with people who do. So 
the uh, the Department of Labor, for example, now with apprenticeships has created a new website called Apprentice Connect, and it will allow you to identify all of the apprenticeship opportunities that are available in, in any state and any city. Uh, and so we need to be able to share that information with others so that they can tap into and utilize that. But in the course of having those conversations with the with Department of Labor, uh, we've learned about other opportunities that that we would not have known about otherwise. So, uh, I, I, and it does take time and, and uh, even exploring the internet to find resources. If we look back at how we began these things, a lot of that just started with Googling who provides reentry services for people with criminal histories and beginning to develop that type of a process. So depending on what stage of development you're in, uh, starting to build a network and and definitely this partnership with the bureau of prisons and and uh, county jails can make a huge difference there may be groups already doing a lot that we just don't know about i really am curious scott about how you all used your second chance funds with housing and then we can talk about employment and education after that yeah so i i i used to think of housing just as being an issue of homelessness until we had a lady that we had helped find employment. She had a job, but she was kicked out by her mother. She had been driving her mother's car, so she was staying in a hotel near her job. But I couldn't even afford to stay at a hotel every day for very long. And so she was going to have to quit her job. And that was the point I really realized that housing is, is not just about homelessness. It's uh, that when people go to prison, they default on credit. And so it could be their criminal history, but it could be just their credit situation that's resulted from them being incarcerated. And and so being able to even get an apartment on their own can be challenging. So when President Obama developed the American Recovery Act, there was an incentive for first-time homebuyers of $10,000. And we took that information and, and, and working with U.S. Bank and local realty company established an, a program that's now been replicated in three different federal districts that can allow people to become home buyers. And, and what we found were, were that people were many times paying rent that was a lot higher than their mortgage payment would be. And it made sense if they developed a career, then the next progression would be to own their own home. And then we looked at research and found that that actually reduced recidivism. One of the big things for us, and which I think uh, applies now since the housing assistance is ending, is the Second Chance Act allowing us to, to help to pay uh, to avoid eviction. And, uh, or maybe just to help a person get started with first month rent and deposit. Uh, and transitional housing is another great option that's available. So we, we implemented all of those different things because each person may require a different level of service. So switching gears a little bit, Jay, to employment, in your article in Federal Probation, you, Marie, and Scott describe the workforce development approach. We've talked a little bit about it here already, and that's a much more complex and intentional approach than mere traditional, quote-unquote, offender employment. So could you elaborate on that and discuss how that should factor into how both clients and officers think about employment in the reentry process? Yeah, I think on the workforce development focus that was uh, was collaborative, I believe, initially through National Institute of Corrections and the BOP and U.S. Probation, starting with Missouri Eastern. So I, I'm going to have to have to 
dump everything on Scott. He, he's much more knowledgeable about it. It was a it was a very widespread phenomenon um, across the system for I don't know about ten years, and there was a lot of training. And then that, for whatever reasons, faded. And then sort of the Second Chance Act function and resources came out. I don't think those have ever, with a few exceptions, maybe in Missouri Eastern, um, have ever really been wed in a in a really productive way. So if I could defer to my friend, Mr. Anders. Yeah, so, well, em- employment really is has been a centerpiece for Eastern District of Missouri. And the statistics are showing that 80% of people that were returned to prison were unemployed when they committed the violation. And so if a person is employed, they're much more likely to be successful. But it's it's more than just saying, go get a job, which, uh, you know, you have 15 days to get a job when you go to the halfway house. And then if you don't get a job, you go back to prison. And, uh, and so we began to identify using really at the beginning, uh, looking at people's educational level, encouraging them to get their GED. We would send a letter to them while they were inmates and say, if you get your GED, then when you get released, we'll be able to help connect you with college programming or employment and working with with prisoners on mock job fairs and developing apprenticeship programs certified by Department of Labor in the Bureau of Prisons, linking those to those opportunities in the community holding career fairs every year from uh, for about 10 years. And now the, the past several years, virtual career fairs, even during the pandemic. This year, uh, while I've been here at the county jail, the last few months, we've been able to hold uh, virtual career fairs with uh, over 100 employers here in, in the St. Louis area. So now is a perfect time uh, with the with the unemployment rate so low and it's it's being so challenging for employers to find people to develop a, a program or to have conversations with, with employers who may in the past have not hired someone with a criminal history, that they may be very open to doing that now. So we spend a lot of time networking with different associations, unions, finding every way that we could to get information out there about how we have good qualified people that can work. And now, even on this side of it, while we're hiring corrections officers, I'm seeing that a number of applicants have prior criminal histories. And if the statistics are accurate that one in 15 adults will be in prison during their lifetime and one in 32 adults are on probation, chances are the majority of people know someone who's made poor decisions and been involved in the criminal justice system. So it's an ideal time to develop these types of partnerships. And and, uh, the community college now has expressed an interest in coming into the jail here to provide not only the high set, but college prep classes and actual actual college training. And we have several unions that will be coming in to provide training, heating and air conditioning, vocational training programs, and uh, even a group uh, coming in to help people with establishing financial aid so that when they're released, they can attend college. Preparing people to vote, because when you're at the pretrial level, you're eligible to vote still, which many people may not realize, even though they, you may be incarcerated. So we, we also have developed a faith-based mentoring program uh, where the court is now willing to allow people to be released at the pretrial level as long as they uh, are participating in this mentoring program. And we'll connect that with housing so that there's transitional housing available. So I, I really just think that it's uh, a matter of looking at what best practices are out there, what may be available in your area, and finding a way to get started. And again, this is a major concept that you guys write about in your article, 
You're prescribing what you call a holistic approach to reentry. Jay, can you elaborate on what that means? You know, I think with First Step Act, it's compelling the Bureau of Prisons to have a risk tool that looks comprehensively at all the dimensions of these folks and translate it into actuarial data in a usable fashion to then inform case planning. And the Bureau of Prisons can do everything Congress asked them to do. If they were fully funded and they have time and they can make it happen, but if probation's not there to, to meet them and there aren't overtures in both directions to receive that and connecting folks with veterans or connecting folks with social security and disability, if we're not there and see the whole person, uh, we're going to get the same thing we've always gotten, which I mentioned at the top of the broadcast is, you know, 49.3% rearrest rate. We need to see the whole person in all their dimensions and all the challenges that uh, they present and engage earlier and sooner than once TSR starts. So Scott, final thoughts here about the meaning of taking a holistic approach to reentry practice. Yeah, I, so I, I just think about how many life decisions I've made that really shaped the, my future and how, how my path could have been completely different had I made a different choice. So just remembering that uh, we're all people and we're a compilation of things that have happened over, over time and that uh, people can change. So it's just important that we're assessing early on what those needs are. And when Clark did his survey, it, it really came down a lot of times to food, clothing, and shelter. But then we also need to look at the cognitive thinking, uh, how people make decisions. It's a microcosm of a, a lot of smaller things that, that ultimately lead to people's success. So, And uh, giving people that second chance, creating that opportunity for hope, I think, uh, I think it makes all the difference. Well, Scott Anders and Jay Wetzel, it's been such a great pleasure to be able to talk to you about this issue that the three of us have so for so many years been very passionate about. Thank you both so much for talking with us on Off Paper. Thanks so oh, thank you, Mark. Thank you, Jay. Yep. Thank you. Off Paper is produced by Shelley Easter. The program is directed by Craig Bowden. Our program coordinator is Anna Glochkova. Don't forget, folks, you can subscribe to Off Paper on Spotify, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, or pretty much wherever you get your podcasts. Also, if you're a U.S. probation or pretrial services officer, just a heads up that we'll be creating an e-learning program in 2022 on reentry that will examine in greater detail many of the issues discussed in this episode of Off Paper, so I hope you'll participate. I'm Mark Sherman. Thanks for listening. See you next time. This podcast was produced at U.S. taxpayer expense.